This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Love and Accept Yourself Now, a memoir. And the author is Krissa Constantine. And Krissa joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Krissa. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. And you're going to take us on quite a life journey here. What you've gone through, this tells your story of how your ovarian cancer experience taught you to love and accept yourself 100%. And, and of course, the whole mission here, you hopefully will help a whole lot of people do the same thing. You say this, I had to face invasive cancer as a single woman without family. And to survive, I had to quickly become much stronger and abandon all negativity. I had to reinvent myself. Well, that is uh, obviously quite a process. A lot of people uh, never seem to even think about that, but for some reason you went there, uh, and the rest is history. Here you are, and you have this great book out, Love and Accept Yourself. Now, uh, Krissa, let's go back. Uh, what year was it when you found out about your cancer? It was in 2005, uh, in July. 2005. What were you doing at the time? I was um, sitting on my bed, um, just thinking about um, the operation that I had. Uh, they removed both ovaries um, because um, they were suspecting cancer, but they weren't quite sure. And my doctor told me he would call me that day uh, to tell me um, if it was cancer or not. And then I did hear that it was cancer. And uh, I was absolutely horrified, needless to say. And then I had to have a hysterectomy uh, just a few weeks later um, because uh, they suspected invasive cancer. And it was a total surprise. And that's the problem with ovarian cancer is that uh, it doesn't give symptoms uh, early enough. And even now, to this day, we do not have an accurate test for um, uh, early detection. So unfortunately, most of the time, it sneaks up on you, and when they do diagnose it, it's usually stage 3, which is invasive, or stage 4, which is metastatic. So I was sitting on my bed and uh, heard it from the doctor that uh, I needed another operation. Oh, my goodness. And so... A day it, I'll never forget, July the 14th, yes. 2005. I'm sure it's a day you'll never forget. So uh, where, what was your thinking like back then? I mean, how, how, obviously, it's much different today. What was your thinking like? I um, was wondering how I was going to go through this. I um, didn't know um, who to turn to. Uh, um, there were so many doctors involved um, that I had to deal with, and things were happening so fast. And there was a lot of confusion also at the beginning with the diagnosis. Uh, some pathologists said it was cancer, some said it wasn't. Um, um, just, I was absolutely, uh, needless to say, horrified and um, very, very uh, jumpy, very um, insecure. But when I did see a booklet from the BC Cancer Agency in Vancouver that said that people with uh, uh, stage 3 uh, ovarian cancer usually do not survive. Mm. That is what really changed things for me. I remember standing in my kitchen reading that booklet and I, I screamed a couple of times and thought, no, I'm only 54 years old. Mm. I'm not ready to die. I must do something. And I knew uh, that my computer technician was also a counselor. And um, I had a rapport with him and I thought, I'll call him and see if he'll come over to the house and help me. And he decided to come over and help me. And that is what really changed my life and also, in the end, led to this book. So, in that process of him helping me through this, so, the, the horror of um, being diagnosed and having to go through chemo. So what was the, the, 
I guess the words, the wisdom, the foresight of how did he get you thinking in this positive way? Because obviously, uh, this negative attitude, this, this uh, self-destructive, uh, I guess you probably, like everyone else, would say, well, I'm going to die. How could you possibly turn that around? What did he say to you? Amazingly, the first day he came over, he um, told me that um, I must have been suppressing my true nature for 54 years. Uh, he knew me already, so he kind of suspected that, and I said, hey, I guess that's right. And then he said, come over to the bathroom mirror. I want you to stand in front of that mirror and say, I love you to yourself, and I want you to say that every 30 minutes from now on for the next few weeks, because when you learn to love yourself, um, as scientists have proven, when you have all these positive thoughts, it actually sends good biochemical messages all throughout your body. Hmm. And conversely, when you have negative thoughts, it sends uh, negative biochemical messages all the way down to your toes. Um, this can be verified now. This has been proven beyond the shadow of a doubt. So he is not a scientist, but he uh, is a very gifted counselor who's done a lot of reading, and he has a lot of practical experience, and he had an instinct for what would help me, and that is what really helped me. Because I knew I loved myself maybe about 80%, but not 100%. And then when I was looking at myself at first, I found it hard to say I love you, but after a few days, it became a little bit easier, and after a few weeks, even easier. And uh, I realized maybe I don't have too much time left. I had no idea what was going to happen, um, you know, having stage three. But I thought, whatever I, time I have left, I want it to be quality time. And I know that if I truly love myself, I will have quality time. So, but that was, was a, um, a day that really changed my life, um, over and above the cancer diagnosis. Yes, you had to go through chemo and radiation. And radiation. Two huge operations. One to remove the ovaries um, because there was a system I left ovary that was discovered with um, uh, ultrasound. No blood test worked on me. Uh, there are many people apparently where blood tests are absolutely useless and I was one of these. Um, so I had uh, first they removed the ovaries and then the pathologist analyzed the cyst, found out that it was um, invasive cancer and then I had to have a hysterectomy to remove, a total hysterectomy actually, to remove all the other organs that were affected by the cancer. And then because they suspected that there were some, there might have been some loose cancer cells wandering around in my body, they called it microscopic cancer. They thought, just to be sure, they um, better give me three rounds of chemo. And then after that, six weeks of uh, radiation on top of that, again, just to be sure that uh, they would try their darndest to stop a uh, recurrence. So that's the whole <laughs> process. Um, not everybody goes through all that. Some people just have uh, surgery. Some people just have chemo. Some people just have radiation. But I had all three things, plus two huge operations. You were raised in a, as you put it, a highly competitive environment. Uh, university yeah. academics, wealthy entrepreneurs, often those kinds of people, pretty driven folks can be highly critical and, and really non-accepting. Yes, I grew up uh, in Vancouver, uh, close to the University of British Columbia, and at that time, um, a lot of the professors lived very close to the university, and many of them were um, extremely ambitious and um, very critical, very condescending, at that time anyway. And I, being the, the daughter of a professor myself, I'm, I felt that um, I really had to prove myself, and all the kids with professors were treated this way. Anybody who lived in that district, um, they, they, the kids were all being watched all the time, and saying, well, what are you doing, and um, who do you think you are, where are you going, uh, do you have any ambition, what are you going to do with your life? It was this attitude. So it wasn't just my, my parents being ambitious. I was surrounded by people um, who were like this, as well as uh, a lot of wealthy entrepreneurs who lived in a, um, a ritzier part of the area, uh, close to the ocean. Everywhere I went, there was um, an attitude of ambition and um, not uh, an attitude of easy acceptance. People were not accepted just for who they were. And that's another thing my counselor did for me. He says, the Buddhists say, no self, no problem, and you're perfect just the way you are. That's another thing that absolutely stunned me. I, I looked at him, I went, I'm perfect just the way I am? <laughs> yeah. Whether you do anything great or not, I went, amazing! Yeah. 
and I started sinking in after a while. Mm. Hey, you know, we're all gifts from God. We all have gifts to give. I've never met a single person who can't do anything. Not once have I ever met that. Everybody has a gift. All right, it's like a garden. Some people are blades of grass. Some people are um, huge plants, be- beautiful big flowering plants. Uh, or if you go to a forest, somebody might be a redwood. Somebody might be a little fern. But it's all beautiful, and it's all a gift. So we should be celebrating the, the gifts that we all have to give instead of concentrating on those little differences and trying to make each other feel bad because of the differences. Obviously... So that's something, yes. Obviously... A lot of people out there have no self-esteem, and they're beaten down by all kinds of situations that they're in, whether it's uh, something that they can control or can't control. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of folks on drugs trying to mm-hmm. maintain just to kind of get through the day, isn't there? Oh, yes. And that's another thing. I was thinking if we'd be such a happy society here in North America, including Canada and the States, uh, I don't think too many of those um, drug uh, lords and barons down there in Central and South America would be making yeah. the kind of money they're making. <laughs> right. That's exactly it. Um, if the, and it, I think it boils down to love and acceptance. If people would feel loved and accepted. Uh, it would make an enormous difference if we would all be more aware of this, how important it is. And I also believe that words can kill people. It's an easy way to kill somebody. If you inject them with uh, feelings of um, inadequacy by just saying a few words like, you're stupid and you're lazy, you're useless, mm-hmm. some people really take that seriously and it can actually destroy them. So I think we all need to be more careful what we say. This is not just something that happens in childhood or on the schoolyard. This is not just bullying there. It's bullying everywhere at all levels, at right. all ages. Yeah. Both sexes, a lot everywhere. Of bu- a lot of bullies out there that just, for some reason... I don't know what it is that they actually get some kind of fulfillment out of being a bully, but I yes. guess that's their weakness. You know, they're hurting it's too. It's their weakness, yeah. Yeah, they're hurting too, but that's the way they react to their pain, I guess. They got to inflict pain yes. on somebody else, you know. And they're hoping they'll feel better. Yeah, yeah. Your story is broken into three parts. The first part, the story of your cancer diagnosis and then your surgeries and the chemo and then, you know, the this amazing counselor that helped you. Your second part, you use some short stories to illustrate the need for self-love. Now, are these around other people that you know, these short stories, or again, focused on what you went through? <clears throat> these are, um, in many ways, um, they I focus on other people. Um, I'm in there in the stories, but the focus is on the others, because once I learned how to accept myself totally, I looked back in my life and wanted to analyze the interactions I had with other people, Um, and I realized that so many of the people I met did not love themselves, Mm. and uh, I also realized that some of them really did. I call these people angels. There are are a few people I've met who are totally, totally, totally in that beautiful, um, like a layer above the clouds. Um, they're, They're spiritually highly evolved people who seem to understand somehow that they are perfect just the way they are and they they radiate sunshine wherever they go they they're full of love full of acceptance but in many cases people suffered so much because they didn't love themselves like i wrote one story about a boy um i used to teach um in elementary and also middle school and one boy wanted to prove himself by joining a gang he he wanted to show that he was a macho man and um something terrible happened to him, uh, mm. all because he, right. he didn't feel good enough the way he was. He had to prove himself. So I wanted to use these stories to illustrate how important it is to get to that stage of uh, self-love and self-acceptance. And your part three is after your chemo and your radiation and how you reach this total self-love and acceptance. And, of course, you write about the importance of love. It's interesting that you should talked about standing in front of that mirror we all have heard about self-talk, but what a very powerful, direct message to look yourself in the eye and say, I love you. That That is, it's amazing that that transformed your life. Yes, absolutely. And it's um, not just a physical thing like um, I don't just love the way I look. It's also I love who I am right. and every aspect of myself, not just my appearance. Right. But everything, everything, absolutely everything. Well, uh, you obviously are on a mission to help others. You've got some kind of a, I read about it somewhere, you, you're doing some things to help people. 
where where you're living, or how is this? Oh yes, yes. I uh, facilitated a grief support group at a church uh, close by, and uh, uh, people who have um, recently been bereaved in some way. And I remember trying to get them to focus on themselves. Um, this was a couple of years ago, and I said, "Why don't you go home?" and uh, stand in front of the mirror and say, I love you, just to concentrate a bit on yourself instead of um, thinking constantly about the person you've lost. And the next week, they all came back without fail, um, all 10 people, and said, I cannot say that I love myself. They, they said, I, I, I just I see all my faults when I look in the mirror and in every way, whether it's character or brains or whatever. And um, so I tried very hard uh, that way. And I also belong to... Um, some organizations where I volunteer to help raise money uh, for cancer, um, whether it's like there's a fascinating um, organization called the Tour de Rock here on our island, Vancouver Island. Uh, sometimes people call Vancouver Island the rock, <laughs> so it's called the Tour de Rock. And um, every once in a while, um, some of the policemen uh, get together and actually ride around, uh, cycle around the whole island uh, to raise money for children with cancer and for a place called Camp Good Times, which is um, on the lower mainland in Vancouver where kids who have cancer go to stay for a few weeks to just enjoy themselves and be pampered. And So I've been involved with things like this and um, fundraising also to expand the, the cancer agency in Victoria to have more um, patient counseling because they realize that um, when you have this diagnosis of cancer, it's not just enough to have uh, physical treatments. You do need psychological help as well, and they just are going to open up a new patient counseling and uh, patient and family counseling center in Victoria. So I hope to raise a bit of money for that too, and just to raise awareness. So I find these things very heartwarming. Right. Well, I'm sure you do, and you're a great example, and obviously have just made this memoir, created this memoir for everyone to read, Love and Accept Yourself Now, a memoir, and Chrissa Constantine, that's who we've been listening to. And Krista, tell us how to get your book. It's on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, Google Books. Um, it can be ordered through booksellers or through iUniverse, through the publisher as well. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host, Mary Similuka. And frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Republican Party, a father and son review of GOP history. And the authors are Ron Leone 
and his son, Jay, and they both join us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ron. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hello, Jay. Hi. Great to have you with us. Jay is 14 years old now, and when they started, he was 11 years old. Uh, first of all, let's go back, Ron and Jay, to when this first kind of the genesis of this, this idea came about. How did that happen, Ron? Well, my son Jay was in sixth grade at the time, 11 years old, and he would watch the news in the morning and, you know, before school and in the evenings. And that was around 2008 uh, with the election. And he would see things related to that, that whole process, the election process and the Tea Party movement. And he started asking a lot of questions that after a few months, I just couldn't simply answer them. So I sat down with him and we started to research it together. And Jay, how did that make you feel? Uh, you you had a lot of questions. Uh, was it kind of challenging at first or did it just seem to fit uh, what you were looking for? What I was looking for at the time, I believe, was just a simple answer, but he did give me what what I uh, more than what I wanted because it went back to the founding of the party and goes all the way to today and what they tried to do and that really uh, helped me understand the Republican Party. Well, history always is a way to go if you want to understand something today. You go back in history and usually. Uh... History has the answers, so I guess let's go back. Uh, Ron, why don't we start with you, and Jay, please jump in. Uh, you know, we, of course, know that the uh, Republican Party hasn't been around since the inception of this country. It came about, uh, I guess it was uh, just before the Civil War, so how did that happen, Ron? Well, you had a, a number of um, individuals get together, and it was a breakup of previous parties, and it ended up in, in Ripon, Wisconsin, where they came together with a, you know, a variety of, of different things um, that they wanted to accomplish. Um, you had, uh, just to give you a few of them, um, you had the uh, American Know-Nothing Party, um, which ended up breaking up. You had the Whigs that broke up. This is all in the 1850s. And then in 1854, they came together with a, a common goal of initially wanting to stop slavery from expanding. And then once they were able to accomplish that in their minds, then they wanted to get rid of slavery altogether. They wanted to abolish it. That was one of their fundamental aspects that they wanted to accomplish. Fremont was their first candidate in 56 who lost, obviously. And then Lincoln, four years later, won. Jay, when you started learning about this, and and today, of course, it seems like the African Americans, the black population, is more aligned with Democrats than they are with Republicans. But here, it all started out with the Republican Party trying to help African Americans. How did that? I mean, how did that? How does that strike you? Well, I find it interesting because, like like you said, it was the Republican Party that originally wanted to help the slaves. Lincoln was their first candidate that, well, not first candidate, the first president that, you know, obviously started the Civil War, not started, but wanted to free the slaves from the South. And I think some of that information got lost over time, and people don't really look at history that way, and they don't want to look, really, I think. That's kind of sad, but I think that's how it got lost over time. Well, as we all know, as we've already said, how much we can learn from history, and often history will repeat itself if we don't learn the the lessons that uh, can be learned from history. So uh, when you look back at President Abraham Lincoln, uh, Jay, uh, how do you see him? Uh, what does he mean to you as a 14-year-old? Aside from, you know, freeing the slaves and what you learn in school, pretty much from the start, he did a lot of things that freed the slaves. 
like um, the 1862 Emancipation Proclamation, and he really tried over and over again to at least reason with the South to free the slaves. Um, he also passed the 13th Amendment in 65, and um, that was no slaves. He abolished slavery, and that is interesting to me, not only as history, but also as a person. Well, you have an amazing understanding for a young man most your age uh, probably don't know these things at all. And, of course, it's so important for young people to understand. Right, Ron? Absolutely. And why do you think it's so important? It's, it's, I, don't, I don't know how much goes on in the schools anymore. I've, I'm not really familiar with what's being taught. Well, nor was I at the time, which is why I figured the best thing to, to answer his question would, would be to research it properly rather than give him a, a brief answer as far as specifically what was going on in 2008. Let's show him a history from the beginning so this way he can put it into his own mind how he feels about the parties, you know, the, the two main parties in this country. And when you research one party, we haven't yet uh, chosen whether or not we're going to do the Democrat Party, but by researching the Republican Party, in a two-party system, you see what the Republicans were doing struggling against the other party, which is the Democrats. So if the Republicans are fighting to free slavery during Lincoln's time period, who do you think they're struggling against? It's not a difficult concept. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you view this word that we hear tossed around so much in the news and so many people call themselves conservative? What does conservative mean? What what would you say it meant back in the early days of the Republican Party, and what does it what does it come to mean? How do you kind of uh, uh, look at that? In in my mind, conservatism means to start from a a clean slate. Everyone has the same chance, regardless of your religion, your race, your gender, and any of those things. Everybody gets a fair shot at success in life. And, you know, no, no head starts to, to any particular individual. And, you know, good luck to all of you and go for it. That's, to me, that's capitalism. That's also conservatism. And when you put the two together, it, you know, throughout history, it's shown to be successful. What other presidents, Jay, stood out for you as you did this historical look at the Republican Party? Are there some other presidents that are real foremost in your mind? Um, I liked Roosevelt a lot, and um, it was kind of funny. During While we were writing this book, I was also doing a report on uh, Roosevelt. I was doing it on illegal immigration, and... What he did was, um, Theodore Roosevelt, just to you know, make sure. And what he did was he took about half of today's the officers down by the border. He took half the number and rounded up. I think the number was almost half a million. I'm not sure. but And he deported them. I mean, that's more efficient than what we have today, but... It could be argued today as less uh, inhumane. But he did also strengthen the Navy and the Army, and he built the Panama Canal, and he just was a, a good president. Just a man, of, out. a man of action. I guess that's what you saw in him. Right. You know, taking action upon his beliefs. Another thing that he did was he took down big businesses because at the time, a lot of big business was affecting the economy because they needed less jobs for uh, to make more money. So he took down the big businesses, helped a lot of people, and he also voiced a lot of support for nature. He founded many uh, national parks and... He also passed 
several food acts like uh, Meat Inspection Act made sure that the meat was properly handled. The Pure Food and Drug Act put warning labels on items that had bad substances, dangerous substances in their food. What do you gain from all of this, Ron? Uh, what are some of the presidents that stand out for you? Well, Reagan, of, of course, um, obviously Lincoln, Eisenhower. Um, I, I learned a lot about Eisenhower as well. And, um, you know, just to talk again about Teddy Roosevelt, he, he gave a speech that I, that I thought was very important. And, and I put it in the book. And um, simply put, it, it states that we as a nation welcome immigrants from all over the world. However, when you're here, you're an American first and foremost. You're not a hyphenated American. You're not a Polish American, a German American, a Mexican American, a Chinese American. You are an American of whatever descent. And with that in mind, you know, I, I think that went quite a ways also with my son. He's Taiwanese, and he even said when we were researching him, so I'm not a Taiwanese American. I'm an American of Taiwanese descent. And I could see it. I could see the wheels in his head turning, that he's starting to realize that we're not a, you know, a hyphenated country. Uh, and that goes a long way. We're a melting pot where we bring the best from all over the world and we bring it here and we meld it. And that's what makes us unique as a country. And we've lost that feeling, haven't we? Uh, very much so. And if you think about it, around about the time where people started hyphenating Americans, right. it's Roosevelt talking about it, we started to balkanize. That's an and, inter and it, interesting point. It's ruining the nation. Right. Yeah, we're, we're, we should be all Americans and not a hyphenated American because suddenly you're not as connected, are you? If you're hyphenated, you're not as rooted connected. Absolutely. If, if you're not melded in with everybody else. Mm -hmm. yeah, and part of his speech said, when you come to this country, you need to adapt to this country. The country doesn't adapt to you. Hmm. Very well and, put. Yes, we, we need that speech. You need to go out and give those speeches, Jay. You need to start <laughs> reading that speech everywhere. <laughs> I can see the wheels turning in his head as, as yeah. we reach that, that particular aspect of, of Teddy Roosevelt. You know, he did some good things, and he did some things that probably wouldn't be considered good. I wish we had more time. We could have done a book on each of the presidents. Right. Well, Jay, a final question to you. What do your peers of boys and uh, or young men and young women your age, what do they feel about you being an author? Um, there's different um, reactions I usually get. Most are usually surprised because you don't see a 14-year-old, or rather, even in a 12-year-old, because that was when the time the book came out, or 11-year-old. And you just don't see people that young publish books. So most of them were surprised, and only a few were actually interested in what I was doing, and they actually wanted to read the book, and I found that interesting. Well, that is. That is interesting. That's too bad there weren't more. Obviously, you would want everyone to read a book like this because so much can be learned from history. The Republican Party, a father and son review of GOP history. Ron, tell us how to get your book. You can go to Amazon.com uh, or BarnesandNobles.com and type in the Republican Party. Uh, put in our last name, Leone, L-A-O-N-E, and it should come up. It's in soft cover, hard cover, Kindle, um, Nook book, um, iBook as well. So it's it's pretty much available to anybody with any device. Jay, thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. And thank you, Ron. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten. 
on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Untying the Knot, John Mark Byers and the West Memphis Three. And the author is Greg Day, and Greg joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Greg. Hi, Steve. How are you? This goes back to May of 1993, this case, uh, this murder case. Uh, Second graders, uh, three of them, uh, disappeared from their West Memphis, Arkansas homes and and that afternoon, the bodies of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore were found. They were nude, beaten. They were bound. Uh, they were in a, gra- a drainage ditch. My goodness, what a tragedy. And, of course, uh, three local teenagers, uh, later dubbed the West Memphis Three, were arrested, tried, and convicted in early 1994. So this got a lot of national attention. Uh a documentary film, Paradise Lost, was on HBO. And so the the story just goes on. And John Mark Byers, who's subject of your book for quite a while, was a target and uh, seemed to be maybe these other three men were innocent and he was uh, the, the killer. It was it's still, I guess, open. The case is really, even though these three were convicted, uh, the case uh, is still kind of open. Is that the is that the the rest of the story? Yeah. Uh, it, again, it's legally it's closed, um, but uh, the district attorney out in uh, uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas, said that uh, you know, he will still uh, listen to any new evidence that they have. They do have the option of presenting new evidence. Uh, they also have uh, some very deep-pocketed people funding uh, that uh, that effort. Probably, although Johnny Depp has been touring around with Damien Eccles, uh, the uh, one of the three men who was on death row, the other two had life sentences. Uh, and Johnny Depp has been very public of his support. But Peter Jackson, uh, the uh, director of the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy and of the new movie The Hobbit. Uh, he's actually Sir Peter Jackson in his native uh, New Zealand. He has been pouring money into this behind the scenes for about five years. Uh, and the movie that he and Amy Berg have produced, West of Memphis, uh, will, is a documentary and it will be out next month. That movie uh, is supposed to be Paradise Lost on steroids. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, a very, uh, very slick, uh, piece of, uh, of documentary filmmaking, and, and that's supposed to really, uh, highlight the 
what they believe are the innocents of the West Memphis Three. And so that's really the biggest thing that the three have going for them uh, now. Uh, and uh, two of the parents of the victims have changed uh, their minds over the years and decided that the three were innocent, John Mark Byers, of course, being one, uh, and Pam Hicks, who is Stevie Branch's uh, biological mother. Uh, they both uh, don't believe that the... Uh, the three that stand convicted are guilty. They have their own ideas. Pam Hicks thinks it's her husband, and so does Mark Byers. Well, before we get into more of the investigation in this story, Greg, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you got so involved in this and published this book, and still more to come. Yeah, well, it started innocently enough with uh, trolling the Internet. It was back in, oh, I guess, 2000, and the World Wide Web was there, but it was still not quite as as, uh, as, as developed uh, as it is today. But I started reading true crime uh, when I was 12 years old with Gerald Frank's Boston Strangler, and uh, I, 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 it's a genre. It's not a it's not a huge genre, but those people who are involved in it are are, are pretty pretty obsessed. And I uh, I also did some prison ministry when I got older. Here in my state of Virginia, and uh, so I was uh, I was involved in the prison system. I was also involved in uh, reading and studying true crime. So when I found this case, it was really by accident. And in fact, it had been the crime was seven years old, and I'd never heard of it. And it was already on the second uh, HBO documentary back in 2000. Uh, so I I really didn't put a whole lot of uh, of stock in the documentaries. I uh, I researched uh, what I could. There was a lot available on the internet. I read several books, and uh, it, it, from there, just uh, it actually led up to me being introduced to Mark Byers in 2005. Now, Mark Byers, being one of the fathers of the victims, uh, Christopher Byers, uh, his son. Uh, why was the public so convinced that Byer, Byers was involved in the killings? Well, there was three years between, uh, or actually two years between the verdicts and the release of the first film, and things were pretty quiet for Mark during those two years. But in March 96, uh, I'm sorry, in June 96, they released uh, Paradise Lost, and uh, Mark's uh, behavior in that, aside from the, the fact that he was, uh, uh, he, he was, he was unnaturally publicity hungry. Uh, the public felt that somebody who was mourning the loss of their son uh, would be less flamboyant on screen uh, as Mark was, and he was flamboyant. He uh, he took a, a set of uh, pumpkins and was shooting them with a round ball revolver, naming them after the West Memphis Three. He burned graves in effigy, uh, and he was just acting all crazy. And anybody who who looked at it, you know, that that was what they walked away with. Those, uh, I think, more people left the first uh, movie thinking that Mark Byers was guilty of something than they thought the West Memphis Three were innocent. I saw the movie, and I didn't think the three looked particularly innocent, but Mark made himself look very uh, uh, very bad. Uh, he never met a camera that he didn't like, and uh, he talked in very... He, he was like an evangelical, uh, you know, quoting scripture and uh, spewing hate uh, of the things that he wanted to do to the West Memphis Three, and uh, it, uh, if you were a supporter of the West Memphis Three and you wanted to look at somebody who had an interest in, in blaming them, you would look no further than Mark Byers, and a lot of people did. And what's the perception of him today? Well, uh, it, part of the perception is the same. Um, he's still viewed as being uh, publicity-hungry and somehow trying to make money uh, off the death of three boys. And as I pointed out in the book, that if that was his intention, he's been spectacularly unsuccessful in doing it because uh, he's really never made hardly anything. Uh, but uh, in 2007, when uh, the uh, when the West Memphis Three reviewed, they filed a writ of habeas corpus for uh, Damien Eccles that uh, was uh, the culmination of several years of uh, forensic uh, and uh, uh, pathological work that they had uh, high-profile people working on, uh, Dr. Michael Bodden and Warner Spitz, John Douglas Nee, a former FBI agent, and uh, they came up with uh, 
enough what they thought was new evidence uh, and uh, to, to file this writ of habeas corpus to try and get Damien Eccles a new, uh, new trial. Mark uh, was swayed by that. John Douglas, who anybody who doesn't know John, uh, he's uh, he was the prototype for the Jack Crawford character in Silence of the Lambs. He's uh, founded and headed the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit uh, for 25 years before he retired and went out on his own. Uh, and uh, he visited Mark and spent several meetings with him uh, presenting the evidence, and uh, he ended up convincing him. This was no small thing because when the mess, one of his three were actually released from prison, the prosecutor said that Mark Byers and Pam Hicks uh, joining the defense team was a big reason why they felt that they would lose if they retried them. Uh, and so, and that was Mark's, they called it his change of heart. That was 2007, and that's where he stands today. Of all the characters in the book, uh, who was the most interesting of all those many, many characters? Uh, that's easy. Lori Davis. Lori Davis is Amy, Damien Eccles' wife. And... They were married, I want to say 1999, in a Buddhist ceremony uh, in, uh, the, in uh, I think he was at Tucker Prison at the time. Uh, she is a landscape architect from New York, actually originally from West Virginia. She's the daughter of conservative Christian parents. Um, she's smart, uh, articulate, pretty. She is, you, you can't find a reason why she would marry uh, a convicted child killer who was sitting on death row. But she never, uh, she never wavers, never has, uh, always knew uh, in her heart that they would have a life together uh, someday. And I, I've tried to chip away at her, uh, her veneer for years, and I just, uh, I can't do it. I don't, I don't understand her. I met her uh, once. In fact, I, I met her at uh, Varner Supermax Prison, which she was visiting Damien, and I was visiting another inmate. Uh, she uh, and she's the whole linchpin because without her, nothing else happens. Just the KGB, which is a, the original <laughs> original West Memphis Three uh, support group from California, were good at attracting attention to the case. Obviously, without Joe uh, Berlinger and uh, Bruce Sanofsky's films, or HBO films, the Paradise Lost series, people wouldn't know about it. Uh, you had people like, uh, oh, Garage Band ties, Marilyn Manson, uh, Henry Rollins, Michael Graves, people like that initially uh, interested, and, and it ended up getting to uh, your higher-tier uh, celebrities, uh, Eddie Vedder uh, of Pearl Jam, uh, Johnny Depp, and Peter Jackson, of course. Uh, but without Lori to pull all that together and take all that money and hire the experts, nothing else happens. So that's an easy question for me. She no. wouldn't allow it to be interview interviewed for the book, but she did talk to me off the record. She's a lovely person. Is John Mark Byers still considered a suspect in the death of his wife, Melissa? I suppose that would depend uh, who you asked, but uh, there's a little, little tin horn sheriff up there who has left his case uh, open. Uh, but uh, the state police, who are officially running the, or ran the investigation, closed it within a year. Uh, so he's, uh, I actually went through a, a considerable detail in the book as to why uh, the death of Melissa Byers should not have surprised anybody. Uh, and Mark did everything he could. To uh, he ordered the autopsy. Uh, he did everything that he could, cooperated with every investigation, uh, and they just, you know, she was an accident waiting to happen. Uh, so I, I, this this guy up in uh, Sharp County, I spoke with him, uh, and he said, yeah, he still thinks that, that Mark had something to do with it, but uh, nobody else does. And what are the chances that anyone else, well now, you know, the 
the West Memphis Three, of course, so convicted. Uh, will anyone else ever be charged, do you think, with this crime? Well, <laughs> qualifying it with the fact that I, that I was wrong about the West Memphis Three, I, I said they'd never get out of prison. Uh, but I don't believe that anyone else will ever be charged uh, with the crime. And uh, the two good reasons that I have for that is that uh, the evidence uh, that they've got, they've only really got one suspect, and they're, and they're both above, uh, you know, in front of the scenes and behind the scenes. The efforts are focusing on this one guy, uh, and they don't have anything on him. You know, the evidence that they have against them is not going to get the state to reopen the case because the state doesn't want to do that anyway. And they, they would have to use the same publicity machine against the state to have them reopen the case as they brought to bear to get them to offer the Alfred plea uh, to begin with. And the second reason I don't think that they'll charge anybody else is because I think they charge the right people in the first place. And so John Mark Byers was just a creation of the media? Totally. And with his own uh, histrionics, uh, I mean, he, he definitely, uh, he, the, the uh, uh, Berlinger and Sanofsky had said, hey, we're going to take this guy and we're going to put him front and center in the second film. Because by the time they did the second Paradise Lost movie, nobody in West Memphis wanted to talk to them anymore. Um, and so Mark was the only guy willing to do that. And like I said, they put him front and better, uh, front and center, and he put his he, he put his uh, behavior. He turned on the afterburners. I mean, it was a really uh, a really crazy uh, performance, and uh, left a lasting impression. And you're planning to write more? Yes, uh, I as I said, I have so much uh, material that because the book just got too big. Publishers had me cut back uh, by a couple of hundred pages, and uh, I, I really the first time I was bound to because uh, you know, I was working with Mark. This was what you might call an authorized biography. Mark never told me not to include anything, but uh, it was always in the back of my mind while I was writing was that there was you know that that, that tended to guide how the story went. I, obviously, if I was going to go in there and start trashing them. He probably would object. Not that there was that much to trash him on. I, I I took him to task on a lot of things, and uh, and he agreed to to everything. I just I'm pretty sure I told the truth. But, but what's left over uh, it, it would let me uh, explore the rest of the case and not focus on Mark, but focus on the case from a uh, from a point of view that isn't out there right now. We've been listening to author Greg Day, his book, Untying the Knot, John Mark Byers and the West Memphis Three. Greg, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can go to uh, iUniverse.com, of course. Uh, You can go to BarnesandNoble.com and uh, Amazon.com. You can order directly from them. You can go through our website at uh, www.johnmark.com buyers.com and uh, currently online is how you have to get it thank you for being with us greg on iUniverse radio thank you so much steve iUniverse radio is brought to you by iUniverse the leading book marketing editorial services and supported self-publishing company iUniverse radio is produced by toginet radio radio with a cutting edge